We're, we're nearing our, the end of our series on uh, the prayers of Paul's epistles. And this last two lessons tonight and next week, Lord willing, are not going to be based necessarily on only Pauline prayers. Because we're going to spend a couple Wednesdays, today and next week, Lord willing, um, talking about the theology of prayer. Uh, especially how the sovereignty of God in prayer and prayer work together. Uh, that's the goal for tonight and next week, and then we'll be done with this series on prayer for Wednesday night. I think that uh, second only to the emotions evoked by the idea that God has decided to save some and not others is the confusion generated by faulty efforts to understand the sovereignty of God and prayer. Uh, how, why is it that we pray if God is already in control of everything? Why is it that we pray if God already predestined everything that's supposed to happen? It doesn't make sense. Because of, so, so I want to take the time tonight to talk about that because it's such a serious um, issue, serious subject. And then next week, Lord willing, we're going to interact with some faulty beliefs concerning prayer and the sovereignty of God. And then also talk about the efficacy of prayer in light of the sovereignty of God. And as we do that, uh, tonight and next week, there will be two truths that will be running in the background throughout this lesson. We're not going to necessarily address them, but they're going to be the operating system. Right? It's there. It doesn't, the rest of it doesn't work if it's not there, but we're not going to be necessarily explicitly considering them. These are the two, two truths here on the, on the screen First one is God is absolutely sovereign, but His sovereignty never functioned in Scripture to reduce human responsibility. So God is absolutely sovereign, but the Bible never teaches that because God is sovereign that we are less responsible for our actions. Right? The second truth is, uh, is related to it is this. Human beings are responsible creatures. And... Uh, you might think, oh, I know somebody who is irresponsible. No, that's not what I mean. That you're, um, responsible means accountable. It's accountable uh, creatures. We choose, we believe, we disobey, we respond. And there is moral significance to all our choices. But human responsibility never functions in the scriptures to diminish God's sovereignty or to make God, uh, make God absolutely contingent. Now, just a, a word about that express absolutely contingent. God's actions are never contingent on our actions. God is not waiting to see what we're going to do in order to figure out what he's going to do next. At the same time, we are responsible for everything that we do. These two things are true. And we're going to be running in the background as we talk about God's sovereignty and prayer. And I wanted to first look at the, the seriousness, seriousness of prayer in the context of the sovereignty of God. And this is important. A day without prayer is a day that totally denies the sovereignty of God and glorifies the will and the self-sufficiency of men. A day that we go without prayer is a day that we are denying that God is sovereign and we're exalting by that our own self-sufficiency. 
we're living as if we are self-sufficient. And any explanation of the sovereignty of God that does not include a loud call for prayer and a robust understanding of the need of prayer is not according to the Scriptures. So any idea that we might have of the sovereignty of God that does not call and propel and, and exalt prayer is not a proper understanding of the sovereignty of God according to the Scriptures. Just the sheer volume of the references to prayer in the New Testament points out to us the importance of it and the necessity of it. And that's without even talking about the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a whole book. The largest book of the Bible is a book of prayer, is it in the book of Psalms. In the New Testament, there's roughly 155 verses worth of teaching of, on prayer. That's six verses longer than the whole book of Galatians. So there's a lot on prayer in the New Testament. The overwhelming majority of the references to prayer in the New Testament are either in the practice or the teaching of Jesus Christ, which just happened to also be the sovereign God. So you can see that the sovereignty of God and prayer only work to, can only work together. You separate them. If you, if you consider the sovereignty and leave that for you not to pray, then there's something wrong with your understanding. If you're praying because you think that God is not sovereign, then there's something wrong with your understanding of prayer as well. Are we okay so far? So a question that a lot of people have is this. If you believe God works all things according to the counsel of His will, and that His knowledge of all things, past, present, and future, is infallible, that is, it, it, it cannot change, not having a mistake, then what is the point of praying that anything happen? If the first part is true about God, so what is the point of praying? Let's explore that just for a minute. Take this not as a rhetorical question. I think that's a common question. If, if God is sovereign and present, past, present, future knowledge is infallible, what's the point of prayer? Jerry. Well, it's kind of a two-way street. God talks to us through prayer as we talk to Him. I, I think. Um, I think His Holy Spirit, you know, especially yeah. when we're reading the Scriptures and seeking His guidance, yeah. it, it's in a prayerful attitude. I think that... Yeah, I, I say more than a talking to us is a communion. Yeah. There, um, I have to say, I've never heard God... Like, like talking, but he can prompt us and so on. God always speaks infallibly through the scriptures. Everything else is fallible, but infallibly only through the scriptures. But there is a communion that takes place there in prayer. But that's true. But how does that relate to the sovereignty of God? If God is sovereign, why pray? If God has already predestined everything that's going to happen, why pray? Really, that's obedience. Obedience? Okay. Brandon? Okay, obedience because he commands us to. There's another hand over there. Somebody's going to say obedience for the third. The, I thought there was a hand over there. No. Yeah. Oh, those, the prayer is the means he uses okay. to bring about his will. Okay, means. Prayer means. This hand over here. Yeah, prayer changes us. Prayer changes us. Okay. All right. Anything else? 
All right, so let me walk you through some things here, okay? It is a fact. All these things are great. Uh, by the way, uh, no. I'm, making, I'm making no moral judgment about the answers at this, at this point. Um, it is a fact that not believing that God works all things according to the counsel of his will is not a choice that we have. To think, to think that God operates according to something else than his own will is to go against the scriptures. Just an example, Ephesians 1.11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So, what is included in all things? All things, right? And he works all things according to the counsel of his will. So, to think that God is, is uh, working according to something else is not a choice that we have. Usually, this question that we had before, this question here, is asked in relation to human decisions. If God has predestined some of you to be his sons and chosen them before the foundation of the world, as Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 says, then what's the point of praying for anyone's conversion? Right, let's, let's boil down to that, because that's one thing that I think we all do, is pray for people's salvation. Again, we've seen in the past that uh, believing otherwise, believing otherwise is not, a, is not consistent with the Bible. Believing that God is not the one that saves people, that changes people, is not an option that's not consistent with the Bible. You know, Paul says in Ephesians 4, 1, 4, and 5, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So why, if that's the case, why do we pray for the salvation of people? Eventually, I'll try to answer that question. But that's, instead of trying to consider all areas of prayer, I'll boil down to this one, because that's a greater area, and that applies to all other areas. The, the implicit argument of the question is that if prayer is to be possible at all, man must have the power of self-determination. People think in order for prayer to work, then we have to have the power to determine what happens to us. Because otherwise, if God has already appointed everything, what's the point of prayer? That is, all man's decisions must ultimately belong to himself, not God. Usually that's, that's what people think. If prayer is going to work, then all decisions have to belong to us and not God. For to do otherwise, if that wasn't the case, God has already determined by all, all things, and all decisions are really fixed in God's eternal counsel. So why pray? If we can't decide whatever we want, why pray? Because God has already decided everything. So let's take a moment then to, 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 to examine the reasonableness of this argument by reflecting on this one example, the example of praying for the salvation of unbelievers. Why do you think I'm focusing on that one? Yeah. But also because that is the most important thing we can pray about. Somebody else's eternal destiny, right? So why pray for anyone's conversion if God has chosen before the foundation of the world who will be his children? Because we are a part of that. And we're not a part of that unless we pray. All right. We're part of that. We're means 
to that end, okay? All right. Well, what does the Bible say about a person who is in need of conversion? What does the Bible say about a person who is unregenerate? What it says is that he or she is dead in the trespasses and sins, right? Ephesians 2, 1. It says that he or she is enslaved to sin in Romans chapter 6 and John chapter 8. According to Paul, the God of this world has blinded his mind that he might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, according to 2 Corinthians 4, 4. His heart is hardened against God, according to Ephesians 4.18, so that he is hostile to God and in rebellion against God, according to Romans 8.7. That's the person who is unregenerate, right? So let me ask you this. If that's what the Bible teaches concerning the unregenerate person, if you insist that this man must have the power of ultimate self-determination, What is the point of praying for him? If that person, that's the picture of the unconverted, must be the one that decides what happens to him, what's the point of praying for him or for her? What do you want God to do for him? If he or she is the one that's in charge of what happens to them, what's the point of asking God to do anything? Because if this is true, if this is a true picture of the unconverted... We can't ask that God overcome the man's rebellion, for rebellion is precisely what the man is now choosing. So, if we pray for God to save him or her, what we would be praying, that God would overcome his choice, which is to be in rebellion against God, and take away his power of self-determination. So you can see that prayer for the salvation of the unconverted only works... If God is sovereign, if, 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 if that's not the case, how can God save this man unless he acts so as to change the man's heart from hard hostility to tender trust? If what I read is the picture of the unconverted, God can only save that person if God changes that person. And yet he can only do that if he's the one that determines things, not the person. So, will you pray that God enlighten this man's mind so that he truly sees the beauty of Christ and believe? If you pray this, you are in effect asking God to no longer leave the determination of the man's will in his own power. You're asking God to do something within this man's mind or this man's heart so that he will surely see and believe. That is, you are conceding that the ultimate determination of the man's decision to trust Christ is God's, not merely his. What I'm saying is that it is not the doctrine of God's sovereignty that thwarts prayer for the conversion of sinners. It is the doctrine that believes that each person can choose for him or herself whatever they want. Because if that's true, then God can do anything for that person. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God actually drives us to pray for the unconverted because we believe that only God can change the unconverted. It's interesting that in history, the biggest push to missions historically has been in Reformed 
churches that believe that God is sovereign. You've heard names like William Carey, Adoniram Judson, John, and I used to say Patton, but then I heard a Scottish scholar saying there has to be Peyton, John Peyton. These are names that are in the, in the Hall of Fame of missionary in the golden age of missions. Every single one of them were a firm believer in the sovereignty of God in salvation. And that's what drove them to missions was the, the thought, the belief, the truth that God is sovereign. That, a God, that, that God had appointed people from every tribe, from every people's group, from every tongue, from every nation to come to, come to him. Any questions so far? So what is prayer? At the basic level, what is, what is prayer? Talking to God, all right. But it's not just talking, right? We are usually requesting something. Right? Prayer is a requesting a request that God would do something. So even when you pray, hallowed be your name, we're requesting something, that God would do something. So prayer, by in, in and of itself, in essence, is inherently a request that God would act. But the only thing that God can do to save a lost sinner is to overcome his resistance to God, to himself. If, you, if we insist that he remains his, self, his self-determining person, then we are insisting that he remain without Christ. Because Jesus says, No one can come to me unless it is granted by him, granted him by the Father. And that's why we can pray for the conversion of unbelievers, because God is the one that changes people. Only the person who rejects human self-determination can consistently pray for God to save the lost. Otherwise, you have no basis to pray for the salvation of anybody. But praise be to God that most Christians are inconsistent somewhere. And we are inconsistent in prayer. In, well, in the good, I'm talking about in the good way here, in where even the ones who believe that God is not sovereign, even the ones that don't believe in, in predestination, even the ones that don't believe that God elected a people to themselves, will pray that God will save Uncle Joe. Right? The, the, their theology can't give the foundation for that prayer, but they would pray that because they innately know that without God reviving a person, there's no way that person is going to come uh, to salvation. So our prayer for unbelievers is that God will do for them what he did for Lydia. Remember what the, uh, Acts 16 tells us that, uh, that God did for Lydia? That God opened her heart so that then she was able to pay attention to what Paul was teaching. We pray that God, who once said, let there be light, will by that same creative power, shine in their hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, as 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says. We'll pray that he will take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, as he says in Ezekiel 36, 26. We'll pray that they be born not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God, as John says in John 1, 13. And, we'll, and with all our praying, we'll try to be 
as Paul says, kind and to teach and correct with gentleness and patience, if perhaps God may grant them repentance and freedom from Satan's snare. And we can only do that if we are convinced that God is sovereign and it is an electing, he is an electing God. So in short, we do not ask God to sit back and wait for my neighbor to decide to change. Lord, please wait till Uncle Joe is ready to receive you. That's brave, no Christian ever. I hope. Right? We do not suggest to God that he keep his distance, lest his beauty become irresistible and violate my neighbor's power of self-determination. We don't pray, God, do not reveal yourself to Jenny till, you know, till she invites you to come and reveal yourself. No, we pray that he conquers our unbelieving neighbor with his beauty, that he unshackles the enslaved will, that he make the dead alive, and that he not allow any resistance to stop him, lest our neighbor perish. That's what we pray. And we can only pray that if he's sovereign over my neighbor. Does it make sense to you? So the sovereignty of God in prayer go hand in hand. Prayer can only exist if God is sovereign. Otherwise, there's no point in praying to Him. Now, someone might now say, okay, granted that a person's conversion is ultimately determined by God, I still don't see the point of your prayer. If God chose before the foundation of the world who would be converted, what function does your prayer have? Well, my answer is that prayer has a function like that of preaching. Have you ever ever thought that this argument also applies to preaching? If God is already appointed, why preach? Right? Um, How shall the lost believe in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As Paul says in Romans 10, 14. Belief in Christ is a gift from God, but God has ordained that the means by which man believes on Jesus is through the preaching of other men, of other people. It is simply naive to say that if no one spreads the gospel, all those predestined to be children of God would be converted anyway. That won't happen. Unless the gospel is proclaimed, people will not be saved. That's the means that God appointed for it to happen. The reason it's naive is because it overlooks the fact that the preaching of the gospel is just as predestined as the believing of the gospel. Paul was set apart from, for his preaching ministry before he was born. He says that in Galatians 1.15, as was Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5. Therefore, to ask if we don't evangelize, will the elect be saved? It's like asking, if there is no predestination, will the predestined be saved? It just doesn't make sense. God knows those who are His, and He will raise up messengers to win them. If someone refuses to be a part of that plan because he dislikes the idea of being tempered with before he was born, that's what God did with Paul and Jeremiah, then he will be the loser, not God and not the elect. Uh, John Piper said this, and I thought it was uh, uh, very apropos. He said, you will certainly carry out God's purpose No matter what, you will carry out God's purpose. However, 
Um, you will certainly carry out God's purpose however you act, but it makes a difference to you whether you serve like Judas or like John. But either way, you're carrying out God's purpose. So prayer is like that. Prayer is like preaching in that it is a human act. It is a human act that God has ordained and which he delights in because it reflects the dependence of his creatures upon him. He has promised to respond to prayer, and his response is just as contingent upon our prayer as our prayer is in accordance with his will. He will answer our prayer because he's appointed our prayers. Are you with me on that? As somebody mentioned, he, 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 he determined that this here is going to happen. But not just that this is going to happen. He also determined everything that's going to happen in order for this to happen, including our prayer. In other words, uh, so when we don't know how to pray according to God's will, but desire it earnestly, even then we're praying because the Spirit of God is working in us and communes with our spirit. In other words, just as God will see to it that His word is proclaimed as a means to save, of to saving the elect, so He will see to it that all those prayers are prayed which He has promised to respond to. Even our prayers are a gift from the one who works in us, which is well-pleasing in his sight, as the Spirit says in Hebrews 13. So how grateful we should be that he has chosen us to be employed in this high service. How eager we should be to spend much time in prayer, because God has appointed those, those prayers. The bottom line is this. God ordained the end and also the means by which he the end will be accomplished. He has ordained the answers to all the prayers he's going to answer. But he also has ordained the prayers as a means by which he will bring the answers. And this ends and means dynamic is clearly shown in the Bible. For example, in Acts 2.23, says uh, Peter is preaching, he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of a lawless man. And Jesus is going to die means you crucified him. Again, the apostles, for truly in this city, they were gathered together against you, your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Means and ends dynamics. Same that we have in prayer. We pray because as a God has appointed prayer as the means by which He's going to bring His will to pass. And then you say, but Tito, we don't know what that is. We don't know if I'm ordained to pray, to, to pray this prayer. There's a very important theological expression to deal with that. Be sure to write it down. This is it. Who cares? Just pray. Election, predestination is a hindsight doctrine. We don't try to figure out what God planned for tomorrow. We just know that yesterday was exactly how God planned. So we pray. We pray, and God uses those prayers to bring to pass His will. And that's why prayer works. Because our God is sovereign and appointed it as a means to bring all the things that he, He's um, planned to pass. 
Any questions? So the absolute sovereignty of God's best uh, of this is, the absolute sovereignty of God is prayer's best friend. If we believe in that, then we pray. Our lack of prayer is a demonstration that we don't believe that God is in control of all things. It is a demonstration that we don't believe that He is sovereign and the boss of all things. It's actually our lack of prayer is a demonstration that we believe the, the contrary, that we are self-sufficient and that God is not God at all. So God's sovereignty should drive us to prayer. Any questions or comments before we dismiss? Jerry. I was just thinking, you've been preaching a lot about the knowledge of God and that the more we know about God, the more we obey Him and the mm-hmm. more we obey Him, the more we learn about mm-hmm. Him. Through prayer, isn't that how we also gain knowledge of God? Because we get to see how He answers prayer and it reveals something about Him to us. That, that, that would be illustrations of what he already taught yeah. in the Bible. He's not going to show us anything that's not in here Correct. in prayer. He's not going to prompt us or give us ideas that are not in here. But those experiences illustrate so that we understand a little better what is already in here. Correct. Yes. Anything else? All right, let's pray then. Father in heaven, thank you that you're a good God who's in control of all things. A God who tells us that we're to come with confidence before your throne of grace to find the grace that we need for, for every, every time. We thank you that you desire us to pray to you and you promise to answer the prayers of those that come in Christ's name according to your blessed will. Now we pray to dismiss us with your blessings. We pray to prepare us for your day. For asking in Jesus' name. Amen.